Well, good morning, Chili Bible. Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, make a, a pleasant discovery, uh, I think, in uh, God's Word in John chapter 8, uh, beginning verse 12. Uh, this week, I made an unpleasant uh, discovery. I discovered that I had to re- move my face to read numbers on a page. You know, I don't know if you've ever had that experience about your mid-40s where you have to kind of do like this. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so Karen told me my day has come. I'm going to have glasses. But um, anyway, um, I'm going to resist that as long as I can. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, a lot of good my pride has done me to this point. Let's... Uh, Let's pray, uh, let's pray, and then let's open God's Word together. God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have in our possession, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have in our possession the fountain of living water, and that the spring of eternal life wells up from within us by your Holy Spirit, and we do not need to go forth Uh, into the world searching for what is not going to satisfy. We don't need to keep digging, as Jeremiah said, cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We have the fountain of living water in Christ by the Holy Spirit, which you have graciously given to us. Father, we... Uh, We thank you for that. We thank you for that reality. We thank you for your word. And as we dig into it this morning, Father, we pray that we would study, not to study, not to know the Bible, but to know and love you. Uh, Because there is a difference between the two. Uh, The Pharisees that Jesus spoke to all the time knew their Bible, but when confronted with the living word, wanted nothing to do with him. Father, let us study the Word to know you and help it to uh, transform our relationship with you and with other people that we might, uh, having been loved extravagantly, love extravagantly those you've called us to be in relationship with. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to be looking at part of John chapter 8. Uh, Beginning verse 12, we're going to look all the way down through verse 30 today. And I want to set the scene a little bit. Uh, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, The Feast of Tabernacles has just ended. And it's about six months prior to Jesus' crucifixion. So this is the last six months of Jesus' ministry. Uh, A lot of times what you have in the Gospels is... uh, a very compressed prologue uh, where you get just little snapshots and stories and sermons and little snippets here and there of Jesus' ministry over a period of about three years, and then time just slows way down at the end, and they spend far more time at the end of Jesus' life than at the beginning. And Jesus has just finished uh, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles along with everybody else. Let me give you also, something else that's happened, that's happened as part of that celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. On the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles, what, uh, what they would do is erect in the court of women there in the temple. There were three courts. There was the court of Israel where the, um, 
where the altar and the uh, and the, the temple structure itself were located, uh, the big wash basin for the priests to wash up after they'd uh, done their sacrifices. Then outside of that, the court of women, uh, and where the treasury was located, where you would make your offerings into these this line of uh, silver trumpets that the, you would put coins into for various things. And then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles where you and I could come and worship. If the temple were still standing, that, that would be the, the area we would be uh, allowed to go into. But in the court of women, there was, it was a, there was a big square space. And what they would do in preparation for the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles is erect these giant torches. And, and when, when I'm saying torches, I, you, know, you don't be thinking about something like a, a stick with a rag wrapped around the end. Uh, think about like the Olympic torch. When you have the Olympic Games, they have this giant basin that's on fire like that. So they are tall enough, they're on poles, and they're, they're tall enough that they protrude way up over the top of the colonnades that surrounded that courtyard. And they're big enough that they hold about 17 gallons of olive oil. And they have uh, a big wick in them, like a candle. And when they were lit, and, uh, and they were lit every night of the Feast of Tabernacles. Every night. And when they were lit, uh, since they protruded up over the walls of the temple... And since the temple is located at the highest point in Jerusalem, they gave light across the whole area around there. And if you were a pious man, now this is, this is again, this is a, something that has changed maybe in our culture, because in our culture men do not dance. Um, you know, maybe they do the white man's overbite with their wife at their wedding, but that's about it, you know. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? But they don't dance, right? But in that culture, if you were a pious man, if you were a pious man, you would, uh, you would dance underneath one of these torches in the courtyard all night long uh, in celebration of the relationship that's there. And the point behind these torches is, remember, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, Right? What does tabernacles celebrate? It celebrates the time in Israel's history where they dwelt in tents and, where, they, uh, and where, where God was in the midst of them. And remember how God appeared at night when they were in, living in tents in the wilderness? As a column of fire. As a pillar of fire at night. And that pillar of fire led them through the, the Red Sea crossing. It led them through the wilderness all the way until they entered into the promised land. The column of fire was with them every night and the pillar of cloud by day. And so these torches symbolize God's presence among His people. That God is with them. Now, Look at your Bible. Again, this is Jesus. He's in this courtyard when he speaks. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he spoke in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, in this section, Jesus makes two very important statements. And remember, he is in the courtyard of women where the treasury was, where you made your offerings. And the first one is about Jesus, about himself. And he says, I am the light of the world. With those great torches as backdrop, Jesus says, you want to talk about the light of God's presence? I'll tell you what the light of God's presence really is. In effect, what he's saying is this. Do you know what these torches are about? They're about remembering the time in history where God's presence dwelt in fire and gave light to the people in the night and led them through the wilderness to the promised land. But there's a greater promised land. And just as in that day, you need God's presence and you need light to get there. And he says, I am the light. And in that phrase itself, he is recalling the book of Exodus. Remember? When God spoke to Moses from the bush, Exodus chapter 3, if you've never read it, you're going to read it in small group this week, okay? If you're not in a small group, get in a small group, okay? You will never find close relationship on Sunday morning having coffee and asking about the Bears game. You need to get yourself in a small group, okay? Um, But... In Exodus chapter 3, God speaks from the bush, and, and he's carrying on a conversation with Moses. And Moses says, I don't know your name. Who will I tell the people of Israel that, who will I tell them spoke to me? What's your name? And God says, I am. In other words, I am the God who is eternally present. I am the God who did not come into existence, who was not thought up at some point by somebody in the past. I am not the God who will cease to exist at some point in the future. I exist eternally. I am the eternal one. The one who is. And by the way, the only one who is. There aren't any others. As God says in Isaiah, I am God and there is no 
other. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, what he's saying is this. What, this, what these things symbolize and these things are the shadow of, I am the reality of. I'm the reality standing in front of you. I am God with you. I am the one who gives light. I am the one who leads through the wilderness of sin into the promised land. I am the one. And the Pharisees stand up at that point. And they say, well, wait a minute. According to the law, the testimony of a person about himself is not true. You've got to have two witnesses for testimony to be true. So where's your other witness? And Jesus says, well, if you want another witness, if you want another witness, you need to look for my Father. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. Where did He come from? Hint, not Galilee. <laughs> okay. He's talking about, I came down from heaven. Just like that column of fire came down from heaven. I came down from heaven. They want to argue about legal technicalities as if somehow that proved Jesus' claim to be false. And he says, you want two witnesses? Here's one. I'm one of them. And I came down from heaven. And I'm going back to heaven. You want another one? The Father who sent me also is a witness. And they go, where is your Father? Well, they're like looking for Joseph, right? I think by this time Jesus' Father is dead. That's why He doesn't appear in the story after, um, after Jesus' 12th birthday. We don't see Joseph ever again. And so they're like, hey, where is your Father, by the way? And he says, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. In other words, if you really understood who I am, that I am the Son of God, to know me is to know God, the Father. Because we are exactly alike. And these are bold claims. In fact, Jesus says not only is he the light of the world, but that anybody who comes to him, anyone who follows him, has the light of life, meaning eternal life. What kind of a guy says that? What kind of a guy uses Old Testament language using the name of God to talk about himself? What kind of a person says that he is the fulfillment of the, pres of the symbols of the presence of God that are scattered all around him? What kind of a guy does that? It is either one of two things. It is either true or it is the rankest blasphemy imaginable. And I think the, that John includes verse 20 so that we understand why Jesus is not immediately arrested for blasphemy in the temple. 
He says, he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. In other words, what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing is all part of God's larger plan. And until that plan comes to culmination, nobody's going to do anything to Jesus. Now let's look on some more in the text. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And they said to him, who are, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. You know what Jesus is doing in verse 21? He's giving them a warning. Giving them a very stern but very merciful warning. That I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to go away. Where's he going? Back to the Father. Back to the presence of God. Back to heaven. And you will seek me and you will not find me. You won't be able to locate him. And he says, and where I'm going, you can't come. Why can't they come? Because they have rejected him. He is very mercifully extending to them the invitation to join him in God's presence. And he's saying, you don't have unlimited time to make that decision. I'm going to be gone, and you will not be able to follow. But they mock. They say, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? Let me explain what that's, what's going on there. The Jews held that if you committed suicide, that you went to the lowest circle in hell. And so they are, they are turning Jesus' words upside down. And they're saying to him, well, he must be planning to kill himself and he will be going to hell as a result because that's the only place that this guy would be going that we are not going. So obviously, Jesus must be planning to kill himself because we're not going anywhere that guy is going. And he's going to be in hell. Whoa. In other words, this is not garden variety misunderstanding 
and lack of belief. This is confronted with the, the promise of eternal life through faith in Jesus. They say, essentially, if you'll forgive me the phrase, Jesus, go to hell. When I read that and understood that, what they were saying, all the little hairs went up on the back of my neck. That you cannot seriously be saying that to Jesus Christ. And yet that is exactly what they're saying. And so he says to them, you are from below, but I am from above. Where's below? hell he says you want to talk about who's from who's from hell and who's destined to go there y'all i am from above and if you do not change your mind about who i am then you will die in your sins unless you believe and i want to edit your english bible okay a little bit because the word he there is interpretive. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You can put the word he in there if that helps you understand that he's saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior, I am the one who was to come. And that's the reason the ESV text puts it in there to emphasize what Jesus is saying. But, but if they, when they do that, it messes up a little bit what, it's, what it is meant to indicate in Greek where it says, unless you believe that I am, where are we back to? Exodus 3. That God is the I am. In, that, in, other, in other words, unless you recognize that I am the one who spoke to Moses from the bush. I am the God who led you through the wilderness in the pillar of fire. I am that same God that you claim to worship. Unless you recognize that, then you're going to die in your sins and you will be in hell. And so they said to him, who are you? And he said, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. When's the beginning? That's, I think that's deliberately ambiguous on Jesus' part. Beginning of this speech or beginning of this book? Jesus is a master of the ambiguous statement. <laughs> That's deliberately left for people to figure out what he's saying. I am the one who has been telling you from the beginning who he is. And I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. In other words, whatever the Father says, I say. Whatever the Father does, I do. I always do what is pleasing to the Father. But you're not going to understand, he says. Verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. Again, there's a, a word that 
it's not necessarily there. Then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. In other words, I am always with the Father. And again, when he says, when you have lifted me up, what's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about worship. And he's calling people back to Old Testament book of Exodus. There were spiry serpents that went into, it might be numbers, but same wilderness journey. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think it's his numbers. Uh, they're on the same wilderness journey, right? Fiery serpents go out through the camp because of the people's rebellion against God. And God tells Moses, make yourself a snake out of bronze and put it on a pole. And when people look at it, they will be saved from the bite of the serpent. Now let me explain. The fiery serpent was, in a sense, meant to recall a story further back in the book of Genesis. Remember? Genesis 3, where the serpent has brought sin and death into the world. And so then there was a promise in Genesis 3 that God would send a deliverer who would crush the serpent and bring people salvation from sin and death and the devil. Right? And so here the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness have rebelled against God. And God says, through the symbol of a serpent, I will bring salvation. And when it is lifted up, I, you, you can look on the symbol of the thing that is causing you death and find instead salvation. And Jesus, here in John chapter 8, is saying, when you lift up the Son of Man, you'll discover who He is. When are they going to do that? Well, either they're going to bow down in worship before Him and see who He is, which the text says here, verse 30, that many people did. They lifted Him up in their hearts and they discovered who He is, that He is who he claims to be. He is the Son of God. He is the one who was to come. He is the one who is light of the world and Savior and Redeemer from sin and death and hell. And then there are going to be others, in fact, some of these same people Jesus is talking with who are going to conspire and who are going to lift him up in a different way on the cross. But even in that is going to be Jesus' exaltation and the fulfillment of God's plan. And salvation from sin and death and hell are going to be found in that. And he says, the Father has never left me. He's always with me. And I'm always doing God's will. And this is this, is this prophecy of what, of what Jesus is going to do and how he's going to accomplish it. And the salvation that people can receive through it. Now let me say this. We live in a world of almost incomprehensible variety and diversity. I found out this week that there are 7,500 varieties of apples in the world. 7,500. 
only about 2,500 of them are grown in the U.S., and you've probably only been exposed to about 100 of them because there's only about 100 that are commercially raised here in this country. Uh, worldwide, there are 212 major brands of deodorant. There are 23 major automobile manufacturers. There are 5 million apparel manufacturers. In the U.S. alone, there are 5,977 insurance companies. <laughs> in just the year 2018, 871 movies were released in just the U.S. and Canada, along with thousands more all over the world. The Internet includes over 1 billion websites. That's a thousand times a million, for those of you keeping score at home. Over 200 million of them are active. The world includes 4,200 different religions, uh, most of which are, are varieties of one of 12 different major ones, but some of which are totally unique and different from every other kind. And yet Jesus stands here in this book, and he stands at the center point of history, and he stands unique among all of the amazing variety of the world, and he presents people with a binary choice involving himself and himself alone. And he says to every single person the same thing. Either follow me and have life, and I will lead you like that fire in the wilderness through the night and darkness of this world all the way into the promised land of which the nation of Israel is a picture and a shadow. Or wander around stumbling in the dark into darkness, separation, death, and hell for eternity. There is one light there is one way. There is one source of life. There are not 212. There are not 4,200. There aren't 5,977, and there for sure aren't 1 billion. There is one way, and one way only, into life and the presence of God. And either God will lead you all the way home through faith in Jesus or you will reject Him. Your sins will swallow you up and you will die in them for eternity. You ever wondered why people don't get out of hell? That's one of the debates that people have sometimes. They're like, well, you know, I, I only sinned for a short period of time in this life and so surely being in hell would be temporary and I will eventually get out. The problem is this, is that you don't sin for a short period of time. Even when you are in hell, you continue in your sinful rebellion against God. And because you never repent, you are never released. And you can't repent because God confirms you in your sinful rejection of him. He says, if you would like to repent, if you would like to turn to Christ, this life is your shot. After that, 
I'm going to let you have your way. You've wanted nothing to do with me this entire life that you've lived, and therefore you will get your wish for all eternity. And that's a very, very serious thing. There is no third option. There's no mediating position. There's life and there's death. There's following Jesus and there's every other deadly pathway. That's it. There is no partial acceptance of Jesus. There's all the way in and having him as Lord or there's condemnation. And I say that not because I think that necessarily there's anybody in this room who hasn't believed in Jesus yet. But I, do, but I say that just in case there is. In case there is someone here who has never put their trust in Jesus, you need to understand the stakes. That God is going to let you have your way. And either your way will be submission to God through faith in Christ, forgiveness of sin, and redemption and healing. Or... It will be letting you live in your sin for all eternity. And you need to understand what the stakes are. And we as believers need to understand what the stakes are because we have lots of people we know who don't know Jesus. And apart from Him are going to die in their sins. And I say that not to lay guilt on anybody And certainly not to say, well, if you don't share the gospel with them, they're going to go to hell and it will be your fault. Okay, that's not true. That's not true. But it is to say that given the stakes, that we have the amazing privilege. And it really is a privilege. Because God can save people without us. His arms are not too short to save God can save whoever he wants without our involvement whatsoever. But we have the privilege of entering into that magnificent act by which God introduces himself to another human being and says, come follow me and have life. And we have this this amazing opportunity in our day. Do you know that there, that that the unreached or the unsaved people in America, if you put them all in one country, would make the third most populous nation in the world. And so we look around and there are unsaved people all around us. And you can look at that one of two ways. You can say, you know, you can take kind of the approach of kind of some grumpy people and say oh the country's going to, going to hell and it's terrible it's not the way it was or say this the country is going to hell literally and God has given us the magnificent truth of the gospel and the ability to enter into sharing it with him by his Holy Spirit's empowerment which pe- with people who need to know him. I hope you don't have to guess which one I think is a better idea. 
If you've never believed in Jesus Christ, let me just tell you it is the hardest, simplest thing in the world to do. It's very simple. It involves saying to God what you already know to be true, that you have screwed up your life 16 ways from Sunday. And come to him and say, Lord, my life is a mess. And you have provided Jesus Christ that I might be forgiven all of that mess and might have a new life. He died on the cross for my sins and he was raised from the dead to give me new life and I want that new life. Help me to follow Jesus. And if you will do that in your own heart, it, the, God promises that at that very moment the Holy Spirit will enter into your heart and life and will give you the new life he promised as a gift for free for the rest of your life. Take you all the way to heaven. And if you've never done that, I invite you to do that. I'll explain it to you. I'll take all afternoon. I'll take as much time as you need to ha that no one would leave this place without understanding how to have the life that is really life. The abundant life that Jesus promised is available as a gift. And then if we are believers, we have this amazing privilege. We have this, this magnificent responsibility to share the good news about Jesus, that he is the light of the world with all we meet, everyone that God brings into our life. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do know the Savior and that his light has lit our lives so that we no longer stumble around in the darkness of sin, headed for our own death. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has never come to faith in Jesus, I pray that today, this moment would be that moment for them. May they... Put their trust in Jesus' death on the cross for their sins to give them forgiveness. And on his resurrection from the dead to give them new life. And Father, I pray that we who are your people would be bold in carrying out the responsibility and privilege we have to carry the gospel to all nations. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.